This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley, going for a walk again, this time with the first of our interviews with uh, Tory leadership contenders. There are so many of them, I'm not sure time will permit for us to do chats with all of them. But I'm delighted to be joined in St James's Park, where we'd like to go for a walk, by Rory Stewart. Hello, nice to see you, Matt, and really happy that... Hi there, good to see you, thank you. People saying hello already. Rory, you've turned into a celebrity. <laughs> well, it's very weird. I was, in, um, I was in Belfast Airport yesterday. I was in Northern Ireland looking at Enniskillen and Derry. And suddenly, for the first time in my life, I had, I think, 15 people come up to me uh, just while I was trying to eat my um, all-day breakfast at 9 o'clock in the evening at Belfast Airport. Just explain for people who are slightly bemused by all of this. You went from being the prisons minister promising to resign if you didn't tackle unrest in prisons, catapulted into the Cabinet as International Development Secretary, thanks to Gavin Williamson, may or may not have been leaking from the Cabinet, and now you're sort of one of the most talked about contenders to be the Tory leader. And it's been very strange. I mean, essentially what seems to have happened is that because I've been going around talking to people, recording it very ineptly and amateurly <laughs> on my phone, uh, I've managed to get people really interested in the idea of politicians communicating with the public. You just need to navigate our way around. A, a, is that a goose? How are you? How are you? Oh, it's goose. That's definitely a goose. Goose. That is a goose. There's a goose. We don't want to. We don't want to get caught being chipped up by a goose. There's one coming straight towards us now. He's he's definitely a Lib Dem voter. I can see it. <laughs> well, you're supposed to be winning them over, aren't you? Isn't that your your pitch that you're you're the centrist Tory candidate? Yeah, I think that that goose though doesn't look like he's ready for turning. One of the reasons I actually have always admired. Mrs. Thatcher's campaigning style is that famously she broke all the rules. The rules supposed to be that when you when she came to a house with a huge hammer and sickle in the window and a big sign saying, uh, I love Karl Marx, she's meant to move on. But in fact, what she would do is spend 45 minutes on the doorstep trying to argue somebody out of position. I love that. I absolutely love the fact that she believed so much in her views that she wanted to argue with the public. And that's what I'm trying to get back to. I had a great time in Wigan with people coming up to me who really profoundly disagreed with me on Brexit. And I really enjoyed just having the argument. I really like trying to convince people to change their minds. And I think if the centre ground of British politics is about anything, it's about trying to talk to people and convince them to change their minds. And to what extent do you think there is a problem in 
politics more generally, that because people have become so entrenched, you're either a Remainer or a Lever, they only follow people they agree with on social media, they only speak to people about Brexit if they agree with them. That actually, it's now become a novelty that a Remainer goes out and speaks to a Lever, or vice versa. I think that's right. And I also think that the labels in British politics have become very odd. So I voted Remain, but from the moment of the referendum, I have been working publicly, tirelessly, consistently to try to get a Brexit deal through. Right? If I'd had my way, we'd be out by much, obviously. And yet, for some weird reason, politics has become defined in a way that somebody like me, who's been trying to get Brexit deals through, is called a passionate Remainer. And the people that are going to be blocking the Brexit deal and mean that we're still in the European Union now get to call themselves Brexiteers. So one of the mysteries of social media, one of the mysteries of modern politics, is that you can attach these labels to people that are completely meaningless. Right? I desperately, desperately want to get Brexit done. And I haven't wavered for an inch on this. People have seen me, I hope, on television day in, day out, trying to get this deal through. And yet, for some reason, nobody will accept that I... I'm a Democrat. I believe in the result of this referendum. I am a Brexiteer. And to what extent do you think that people calling you a Remainer is to try and sort of seal you off from the race? Everyone says that the next Tory leader has got to be a Brexiteer. So there's a way of sort of keeping the likes of you and Matt Hancock, people like that, out, out of contention. Yeah, there's a bit of that going on. There's a bit of that going on. I think the other thing that's a bit sad in this race is I sometimes feel like I'm the only old-fashioned Conservative particularly on issues like economic policy. I believe that we shouldn't make unfunded tax cuts, we shouldn't make unfunded spending commitments, and I'm in a race in which people seem to have forgotten that the most important thing that we have as a party is our reputation for economic competence and credibility. So people who are a no-deal Brexit, followed by 5% tax cuts, or people who are offering tens of billions of pounds of extra spending a year, or talking about turning on the spending taps, really worry me. I mean, the entire brand of our party is about being economically responsible. So in some sense, I'm populist. In some sense, I'm being Trumpian because I'm doing all my campaigning on social media and I spend a lot of time talking to people and I'm, you know, enjoying that radical edge. But when it comes to economic affairs, I sometimes feel I'm the only conservative left in the race. You mentioned Donald Trump. We can hear in the distance the vast bands, the mass bands of uh, the royal household. We're actually just walking through the parks and Buckingham Palace at the far end of the park that we're walking through, where Donald Trump is or will be shortly. So you see yourself as being Trumpian in the approach that you're taking? I'm the Trumpian anti-Trump. <laughs> so to give, give, give one example. I tried to talk to the Daily Telegraph about adult social care policy, and they didn't really want to carry it. I think their editor must have concluded that people aren't very interested in the issue of how you provide care for the elderly. I put it out on Twitter, and I think I've got 650,000 views, which is something like three times the entire subscription of that newspaper. So people clearly are extremely interested in engaging the details about its social care policy. When I put out something on no-deal Brexit, again, I'm told nobody wants to hear the arguments against no-deal Brexit, I've got over two million views. That's two million people watching this in two days. So we're moving into a world which I think Donald Trump has understood, which is that we're not actually reliant anymore on those sorts of mechanisms. And that's my great advantage, because all the other candidates are selling themselves, I think, in this way. My understanding is that Boris has got the endorsement of the Telegraph and is about to get the endorsement of the Sun. Michael Gove appears to have very, very close links into different parts of Fleet Street and have different bits of Fleet Street coming up for him. And I believe Matt Hancock is making similar claims, but it doesn't matter, 
because I'm not really dependent on that anymore. I'm actually the only candidate in this race who's liberated it. When other people can get maybe some of them 15,000 views, at most 100,000 views on Twitter, I can get 2 million. I'm reaching 20 times the number of people. Okay, let's talk a bit about the man, Rory Stewart. Particularly, I, I want to ask you about Roderick Stewart, Rod Stewart. Rod Stewart is your actual name, isn't it? That's right, exactly. Um, and you were born in 1973, two years after Maggie May was released. There's no getting away from the fact that your parents will have known who Rod Stewart was. Well, you would have hoped so, but I'm a little bit doubtful about that. I mean, <laughs> my father basically only listened to Gilbert and Sullivan, so I'm not sure he had much real idea. My father was born in 1922, so you, you would have thought they would have known what they were doing calling me Rod Stewart, but I genuinely think that my father had no idea at all what he was doing. So how long were you Rod Stewart for? I wasn't. I was Rory Stewart. I was called Rod Stewart because the vicar apparently said that Rory wasn't a Christian name, so ah. refused to christen me Rory. So you've never been known as Rod? No, I've never been known as Rod. Have you met Rod Stewart? I have once met Rod Stewart, <laughs> yeah. I was very excited about that. That was a huge moment in my life. OK, let's, um, let's move Hello. forward a bit. You're, you're one of those dreaded things in Tory politics. You're an old Etonian. Is that, is that an issue for you, do you think? I think it's an issue, yes, but I think this is a very important time for politics. And sort of more fundamentally, I'd say you can focus on that five years of my life between 13 and 18. You can also focus on the five years that I spent in Afghanistan or the five years I spent serving my country in Iraq and the Balkans. Let's talk about all of it. Let's talk about the rounded person. What do you think about the other fellow Old Etonian in the contest, Boris Johnson? Is he up to the job of being Prime Minister? Not if he's going for a no-deal Brexit policy. I mean, that's really my problem. My problem isn't Boris as a man. I mean, I worked for him in the Foreign Office. I thought he was credibly good company. But my, my fundamental problem... Is he, is he credible as a potential Prime Minister? Because it's interesting that almost all of the ministers who worked for me in the Foreign Office are either running themselves or backing other candidates. The people who've worked most closely with him don't think that he should be Prime Minister. Well, that, that's, that's true. For me, that's partly because I think all of us can seal that somebody who says they're going to try to renegotiate with Europe and if they don't get a deal by the 31st of October, they're going to leave with no deal is espousing a policy which will split the party, split the country and lead to a Jeremy Corbyn government. One of, one of your most famous interventions in the race so far has been your admission of smoking opium at a wedding. Uh, we've all done strange things at weddings. I don't think I've ever smoked opium at a wedding. I asked on Twitter before we came over and met, what should I ask Rory Stewart? One of the first questions back was, what was opium like? So this was 15 years ago, and I was walking across Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India and Nepal, and I was probably three months into my walk in Iran. So I was walking 20, 25 miles a day. And at lunchtime, I turned up in a village and I was invited into a house where the men were sitting around as part of a wedding celebration. And I was sitting there politely chatting, having my cups of tea. And then I suddenly saw coming around the room towards me this pipe. And every man smoked and passed it on to the next man. And it came to me and I smoked the pipe. And I think the two things I took from that, I mean, one is that it had no particular effect on me. I mean, it was partly because I don't know there was a very poor village. They may not put much opium in the pipe. But secondly, I was probably walking 25 miles a day. But the second thing was that when I left that village house, I actually could see very directly the impact of this on the community. There were people living homeless on the streets who were opium addicts, whose bodies were being destroyed by this. And then later in Afghanistan, I 
began to see the way that the drug trade worked. I met warlords, I began to meet the criminal gangs that are involved in this and saw that what I'd done there, which was foolish, wrong, and to some extent being polite at a traditional wedding ceremony, connected to something much, much more sinister, something much nastier. But I suppose there's one more thing, which is that I believe as a politician, if somebody asks me a question, I should try to give a straight answer. <laughs> Are you learning to maybe not do that? No, I hope not. I, I, I think, actually, what have I really got to lose in this campaign? You'd have to be on a quite strong dose of opium, wouldn't you, to think that you're going to win this contest? I don't know. I think... I don't know. I think things may be shifting quite quickly in British politics. If you look at the polling data, you can now see that I am outpolling the other candidates in all the key sectors they need to win an election. I'm much more popular when it comes to younger voters, BAME voters, voters from Scotland, voters from cities, Lib Dem Labour voters who would vote Conservative for Prime Minister. Now, these things sound... Um, just like their numbers, but they matter because if you're going to make a better country, you have to win an election. And the question that I have to get into MPs' heads, and there are about 100 MPs who haven't yet committed, is that fundamental question. Who do they think is best placed to win an election? Which one of these candidates can actually connect with people? Which one of these candidates can actually pull off what's going to be a pretty difficult challenge, which is to take a government that by the time we go into a general election, if I'm lucky enough to be Prime Minister, will have been in power for 12 years and become a party that is exciting enough, radical enough, healing enough, able to reach across enough to different parts of the population to win an election and beat Jeremy Corbyn. And that, that requires, I'm afraid, some elements of communication, some elements of charisma, some elements of action. So in this race, the people that I feel are my real rivals, are probably Boris and Michael Gove. Those are the two figures that seem to me the most formidable players here. Boris because he's an exceptional communicator, and Michael because he was an extremely competent minister. I mean, he's really energetic. He got things done. But I hope what I combine is the strengths of both of those people. I have some of the ability to reach across and surprise and communicate of one of them, and I have the ability to administer and think and get things done of the other. And at what point did you decide to run? Because I, th I saw you a few weeks ago and you were sort of thinking, well, maybe, but if somebody else sort of came along, what, what made you look at the, the vast array of people that were running and think, actually, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring? It was the moment at which I realised that not a single one of them was prepared to rule out no-deal Brexit. It was the moment that I realised that not a single one of them was prepared to fight for what I thought was the centre ground of British politics, sensible fiscal policy, when I realised that every single one of the other candidates is still pretending they're going to negotiate some alternative arrangements with Brussels. At that point, I thought, if there is nobody, and I'm the only member of the One Nation group running in this race, but I'm also, I think, the only person in this race who's running for what is actually the majority opinion in this country. The majority of people in this country do not want a no-deal Brexit. And so how, how do you stop that happening? What is it that you're going to do that Theresa May didn't do three times to get this through so that we don't leave with no-deal in October? By recognising that the fundamental problem is unlocking Parliament, that we faced a standoff between a referendum that's given a clear instruction, leave the European Union, an instruction I want to carry through, but which Parliament is blocking. 
And that's because of the way that Parliament is set up. Parliament's a great institution, but in the end, the party system, the whips, the constituencies make it very, very difficult to deliver on the result of referendum. So I would set up a Brexit assembly, and that is taking advantage of this democratic moment, going back to the people directly, but not to the whole people, not through a referendum, but through taking a grand jury of citizens, normal people, putting them in a room for three weeks in the way that they did in Ireland on abortion, to focus on the issues and make recommendations. And that isn't just trust in citizens, although it is. It's not just a belief in compromise, although it is. I'm the candidate for compromise, and I believe if you put people in the room and they think about it, they will conclude, as indeed every rational person in this country, I think, will ultimately conclude that that deal is the only deal, that deal is the best way, that deal is the best way of resolving things. In fact, one of the mysteries of this whole race is, though I'm the only person saying this, pretty much, as far as I know, every journalist in the country agrees with me, every major newspaper in the country agrees with me, every academic in the country agrees with me. And I think if you put those people in a room and they go through the figures, they take evidence from Barnier, evidence from Farage, they will reach the same conclusion. But there's another political point here, which is that's the way you unlock the key 45 Labour votes, because people like Lisa Nandy from Wigan, I was in Wigan recently, have committed to the same process. So that's the way you get them across the line. It's the only way of getting them across the line. All these other ideas that these people have got are different forms of galloping unicorns. <laughs> so what happens as Prime Minister Rory Stewart on the steps of Downing Street, end of July, enters number 10. What's the first thing that you do? Day one, announce we're forming the Citizens' Assembly. First week, get the selection from the electoral roll, get the polling companies to select those representative people, end of first week, they sit down, begin three-week process, recommendations produced, bring Parliament back, 1st September, sit down, take recommendations through, out before the 31st of October. And is Boris Johnson in your cabinet? Is Boris Johnson in my cabinet? I don't think he wants to be in my cabinet, is probably the answer. I mean, I'm afraid the sad truth about this no-deal issue is that it's getting difficult. It's getting difficult. I mean, I don't think this is about personalities, but... It is about a profoundly different version of what politics is about. I believe politics can never be about trying to out-farage-farage. Farage. The way in which I'm a Trumpian anti-Trumpian is I believe in using populist means for a distinctly anti-populist cause. I'm all about compromise in the middle ground. I refuse to allow people to simplify. I believe in... Now, the public's ability to handle complexity, because they handle compromise and complexity in their own lives, they can handle it in politics. It's a question of communication. Right? Well, one of the reasons I like Twitter is that when I put out my social care policy, I get 2,000 really smart, informed comments. I mean, not what you would have thought, right? Not the kind of ranting, Twitter troll madness, but actually people with interesting articles, references, thoughts, suggestions, engagement. But how do you bring together even the Tory party in Parliament? If Boris, if you're not sure Boris Johnson wants to work in your cabinet, you don't want to be in his cabinet. How do you, you know, if Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister, there's some of your colleagues that wouldn't stay in the Tory party. If you became Prime Minister, Mark Francois and Andrew Bridgen are unlikely to be delighted. How do you sort of get the genie back in the bottle, given that the, the Tory party is in such a mess in Parliament? because we have to be about unifying, we have to be about compromise, we have to be about my communicating very, very strongly that this is a party where Ken Clark and John Redwood once ran on the same leadership platform, where 
In the end, Marc Francois agrees with me about defence security policy in the British Army. Andrew Rossendale agrees with me in his patriotism and his love of tradition. Andrew Bridgen agrees with me because he is economically conservative and he believes in sound, prudent fiscal policy. We are conservatives. We don't want Jeremy Corbyn in. And remember, if I were lucky enough to be elected as Prime Minister, it would be a complete seismic shift in the way that British politics works. It would be the associations and the public saying to Parliament and Westminster that we're not actually particularly interested in these cabals and deals struck in the tea rooms of Westminster. We're breaking open the entire conventional wisdom of this. We're breaking open the conventional wisdom of who the newspapers are endorsing. We're breaking home the conventional wisdom of what all these little plans and schemes and teams think they're doing. So that I would be coming in and saying to Andrew, or to Mark, or indeed to Jacob, or to Boris, I have a completely different mandate. And ultimately, without being too pompous about it, I would be saying, my mandate is actually from real people, not from here. And that gives me a power in this, which none of the other candidates have. Let's talk more about your, your sort of first days in, in Parliament. Who else is in your, your cabinet? Who's your Chancellor? You obviously you work closely with David Gork when you were so, just... So, obviously, David Gork has just endorsed me. Ken Clark has just endorsed me, which is great. That means that I've got probably our most successful Chancellor of the Exchequer in the last 40 years on our side. Um, I would love to work with people like Philip Hammond, obviously, although he hasn't yet endorsed anybody. I believe I'd also like to have some of the amazingly talented voices that are out there on the right of our party. So I would, of course, like to bring people like Jacob in. I would You'd offer Jacob a job? Yeah, I'd definitely offer Jacob a job. I think he's a, he's a very, very impressive person. Penny Mordant full of huge admiration for. I think she's terrific, and I've been very proud to take over DFID from her. She was a great DFID Secretary of State. I think Andrea Ledsom I've got a lot of admiration for. I think she's actually behaved very honourably in a very straight way over the last few months, even though we have disagreements with each other. Um, I, there are so many, I, I, and there are people who maybe listeners are less familiar with who I really admire, Graham Stewart, Nigel Adams. There are many, many people out there who... Craig Whitaker would be another example for my intake. People who just have substance to them, who've done things in the real world, who are good at action. Nadim Zahawi would be another example. People who have an instinct for getting things done. My sense is that the problem in government is we haven't been awfully good at getting on board people who get things done. One person who lots of people say, and I think you've said yourself, Michael Gove got lots of things done. During the last leadership contest, in fact, it was Ken Clark who's just endorsed you. During the famous bloody difficult woman incident when he was caught on camera describing to his mate, the bloody difficult woman, he also discussed that you couldn't have Michael Gove as Prime Minister because he'd end up starting three wars. You know a lot about foreign policy. Would you have worries about Michael Gove either as Prime Minister or as Foreign Secretary? I think Michael and I do disagree on foreign policy. I think he's very, very smart. I think he listens well. I think he often likes to challenge, likes to provoke. I think that's a good thing in a rather kind of cosy race. But you're right, we disagree profoundly, for example, around the Iraq war. We disagree profoundly, I think, around our views on, I think our views on the way in which you deal with challenges from Islamist extremism in Britain. So we would have, a, I suspect, a very different foreign and defence policies. Before we move on from your fancy cabinet, can you see any role for Theresa May in the future, or do you think that's it? I think the Prime Minister would be uh, probably looking for a break. I mean, I think 
one of the things I've been most proud of over the last few months is, is sticking by her. I was the last cabinet minister on the bench during that final statement. I think for the last 45 minutes, the only cabinet minister on the bench with her. And watching just the kind of energy, the sheer courage and nerve she was showing there when everybody had abandoned her, single cabinet minister next to her, still challenging Joanna Cherry, shouting across the chamber, remaining good-humoured, really, really trying to, to make the argument again and again for what she believed was right. And she was right. <laughs> History will vindicate her. If I become Prime Minister, one of my legacies will be to prove that actually the deal she negotiated with the European Union was the deal, was the best deal that we could get. She just didn't sell it properly. In the end, it was unlocking this question about Parliament and a referendum. And that's where selling it is part of it, reaching across is part of it, but actually the Brexit Assembly is going to be critical in getting this through. Because if I come in with a mandate to do this, I'm in a slightly different position to the Prime Minister. I'm saying explicitly from the beginning, if you vote for me, what I will be doing is taking this deal through. The Prime Minister didn't stand on those terms. Many people understood different things about what she was doing. There was a lot of talk about red lines. There was a lot of misunderstanding. If I became Prime Minister, that isn't true. There'd be no doubt in the minds of Andrew Bridgen or Marc Francois and John Redwood that what I'm pushing for is to get the withdrawal agreement through and then move on to take the opportunities that we can get in Europe for British motor manufacturing, for British farmers, all the economic opportunities that are there. Just in the background, we can hear the multi-gun salute for Donald Trump at Buckingham Palace. Where do you stand on Donald Trump? Do you think it's right that he's been given a state visit? Absolutely. I think it's critical that we provide state visits, just as we did for the President of China and indeed for the President of the United States. We should have immense respect for the office of the President. It's nothing to do particularly with the individual who occupies it, and they are our most important ally in the world, and particularly at a time of when we're leaving the European Union. The last thing we want to do is to also be undermining our relationship with the United States. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
If you looked at British politics and thought, this is not normal, join me, Matt Chorley, on my tour as I try to explain what the hell is going on. For tickets, go to mytimesplus.co.uk. This is not normal. All of you being here is not normal. I couldn't believe it when my good friend Diane Adams told me we'd sold 50,000 tickets. <laughs> so what I'm going to try and do is to try and explain why politics has gone so weird. Now, this is going to take about four or five hours. Uh, it's the run up to the 2007 local government elections. And I was going to interview David Cameron. So I asked him lots of really tough questions like, why should people vote Conservative? Why do you love Cornwall so much? What's your favourite farm animal? If only I'd ask a follow up question. Okay, let's, let's move off politics a bit. Let's talk about how you, how you relax. What's your f- current sort of favourite book, film, box set, album? How are you unwinding at the moment? Well, I'm trying to, to unwind largely by running. I like getting out and clearing my head and trying to leave my phone at home. One of the problems of campaigning on social media is you spend your entire time replying to things on Twitter and you go slightly bonkers. And do you listen to music while you run? No, I, if, I can, if, if I can avoid it, uh, I try to uh, leave phone and any music behind and actually just try to take on board, at the moment, particularly Birdsong. But in terms of things I watch, well, we have watched every predictable box set that you can think of. So we've really enjoyed House of Cards, really enjoyed Homeland, made it all the way through Game of Thrones. We... And it's usually my wife and I in the evenings, often when the children have gone to bed. We'll try to Fleabag? You're a Fleabag fan? No, I haven't done Fleabag. Is there anything you've started watching and given up on? Initially, actually, I gave up on Game of Thrones. So I was pretty put off the first two episodes, which seemed like a kind of combination of soft porn and violence. And it took me a bit of time to get back into that. I also tried, was recommended, this comedy about a gangster moving to a small Swedish town which I again watched two episodes of and got a bit bored by. I haven't really liked Poldark, that didn't really do it for me. Uh, what about music, if you were going to listen to music? Were you were uh, hip-hop, classical, rap? I'm pretty tone-deaf and the answer is classical. You don't, you don't sing? No, I, I'm so bad, I mean actually so bad. I, uh, it's very embarrassing, my, my father died recently and I had to sort of lead singing around his grave and it's just awful, I'm a really, really bad singer. My wife, fortunately, sings very beautifully. My father sang very beautifully. He had a lovely baritone voice, a trained singer. And it's in all the things that my father... I was very close to my father. He, but I think one of the great disappointments of his life was that all his love of music, his knowledge of music, his beautiful singing voice, he wasn't able to communicate to me at all. And he... Because he was a great optimist, he always believed that if I just kept going and tried a bit more, it would all come true. So you don't play any music uh, instruments, are there? I used to play the bagpipes, oh, but, but oh. even that I was pretty bad at. That's sort of worse than no instruments, isn't it? <laughs> not for me as a Scot, no. Of course not, of course not, of course not. Um, and I suppose, finally, on the, on the subject of films and that sort of thing, I need to ask you about whatever happened to the Brad Pitt film of your life? Well, what happened to that, basically, is that this very glamorous story, which a script was written about, about my walking across Afghanistan, governing a province in Iraq, finding a lost city in the mountains, getting involved in Obama's team to renegotiate all the glamorous bits of my life came to a grinding halt when I became a Tory MP on the film. <laughs> that wasn't the glamorous ending to the Orlando Bloom film that they were hoping for? No, I think they were hoping either that I was going to get shot in a, a snowy pass in the Hindu Kush or I'd 
retire to a Tibetan monastery or maybe become president of the United States, but becoming a Tory MP simply didn't work with the script. <laughs> but they could have just killed you off at the end, couldn't they? Yeah, I think that, that probably would have been better. But actually, I think we may, I'm actually finding more energy, more excitement now in what I'm currently doing, communicating with the public, than I've had in the last nine and a half years of my time in politics. It is so exciting. I like the sense of being an insurgent. I like the sense of being an outsider. I like the sense that I can take risk, get out and talk about things that people don't want to talk about. Today I'm talking about hearing aids. Who wants to hear about hearing aids? Newspapers don't want to hear about hearing aids. I bet you I'm going to find 100,000 people on Twitter who are going to want to engage me. And matters deep to me, my father was deaf. We've not done anything with technology on hearing aids. It could be amazing for British universities, amazing for British industry. And it's exactly the kind of example of a thousand small injustices in daily life which we can turn around. And it's so liberating. After years as a junior government minister, having to be part of this collective responsibility to finally be unleashed to reveal a vision of how we make this country a better and happier place. Go on then, give me, give me four or five more hearing aids. What are the things that you care about that you don't think get the hearing, literally the hearing they deserve? Uh, number one, hospital car parking charges. Day one, I'd abolished them. It's outrageous. You go to visit your mother who's dying in hospital, you come out, you get a hospital car parking charge. Number two, knighthoods for people who don't pay British taxes and steal £500 million from people's pension funds. No more knighthoods for people who don't pay British tax. Number three, I'd like to get 120 million trees in the ground over the next four months. I would use the single farm payment to get farmers to go, and I'd transform our air quality. I'd also transform the landscape of the United Kingdom. Two million houses. I would get the government to issue green bonds, borrow the money against those houses, build them ourselves. They would be the garden cities of the future, trees, parks, and beautiful houses that people would look at in years to come. And I would restructure our defense and intelligence forces. I would re lead to the rebirth of the Scottish regiments. I would make sure that our intelligence security services were admired around the world and that we really shifted our position from the Middle East to Asia, from the Middle East to Africa, and above all, that we delivered a Brexit that worked for people, that streets were safe, that people are not waiting for, pe for weeks for a GP's appointment, that people are getting the kind of education school that they want, and that as AI and robotics changes the world of work, we have the opportunity to provide midlife training for people to get the skills to go into new work. If I could achieve some of those things in my first six months in office, I'd be pretty happy. And I note that uh, legalising drugs wasn't on that list, given your admission last week. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think what I saw leaving that house in Iran, seeing opium addicts in Iran, is just the misery and the horror. And that's something that I felt in prison too. I think drugs are a horrible thing in people's lives and government should be doing all it can to keep people off them. Just finally, you go into number 10. Larry the cat is there waiting for you. Are you a cat man or a dog man? I'm actually, the, I think, the only person in my family who's a both man. But at the moment we have two... Such a politician's compromise it, it, answer. This is terrible, isn't it? But, <laughs> but I must confess, I have both cats and dogs. So, so I fact, can prove that. So you might be the first occupant of number 10 who actually likes Larry and gets on with him. I, well, I actually really do get on with Larry myself. In fact, we could walk over there now. I can prove it. I'm one of the few people Larry wants to talk to. Boy, <laughs> <laughs> Stuart, an absolute pleasure. Thanks Thank very much. You. Thank you, Matt. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. 
Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.